It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, and you're listening to episode 606 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 48 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. I'm Brodor. And this is DJ. All right, so let's explain real quick what's going on here. What you are hearing is the first in a series of regular episodes. These are not intended to be bonus episodes or negative episodes or any new type of show. But we are doing them in a somewhat different format. Namely, we're bringing on more remote hosts than we have in the past. Neither Brodor nor DJ are located here locally with Wayne and I. And the reason that we are doing this is to try and help us with some of the current difficulties with local host availability because the past few years have kind of sucked for everyone, us included, but also so we can bring back the perspectives of some people that we've had on in the past or even had as regular local hosts that simply had to move. Like in Broder's case, he went to jail. And in DJ's case, he lives in Oregon. And we're also looking to bring back people like Tex and non-people like Chris Hussey. So that's what we're doing here. And you are hearing our first take on this. So we're going to see how this goes. Now, before we dig into today's subject, let's real quick talk about DJ and Brodor, what have you guys been up to over the past couple of months? We'll hit Brodor first because he's probably the easier of the two. So I live in Gold Hill, Oregon on an 18-acre mountain compound. It was enough that I had to stop being a house husband and get a real job. I got hired on the spot at a gaming company called Fun Again Logistics, and we do primarily Kickstarter fulfillment. Um, And I found out today that even though I was hired on the spot and they had plans for me in the future of the company, the logistics division is being shut down and that my boss is losing his job and my boss's boss is losing his job. And well, the we're all losing our jobs in March at some point. And so uh, I'll be looking for other work to pay for bullets and bottled water. Kick ass. Well, I'll still go ahead and keep an extra bedroom for you. Dude, I love it here. No, Dan, I can't. I can't even get into it because we're trying to keep the introductions brief. I know, I know. I just want you to understand that I will ruin your life and bring you back for purely selfish reasons. That's that's an ongoing goal of mine. And, you know, when you have an ongoing goal that you're trying to work toward in individual bite-sized discrete steps, sometimes you could use a little bit of help. And gee, DJ, do you know where someone might find such a product? I do. And that's something I created in Bujo RPG, which is short for Bullet Journal RPG. And I was on the show last time for. Yes, uh, DJ has been on the show before. He was a guest on episode 466, where he talked about Bujo RPG, which is a tool for gamifying your life and creating sort of a pseudo RPG experience around trying to achieve. And I will link both that episode and also link to Bujo RPG in the show notes. So if you are looking for something to make it a little more fun as you're trying to lose weight, get a book written, ruin Brodor's life, then 
this is a great product to look at. We loved it when we had him on the show before, and I'm happy to have both DJ and his perspectives back on the show. If you're going to ruin my life, you better be five foot six, like 110 pounds, red hair, and covered in tattoos. Dude, your Marilith is none of those things. No, but I'm just saying that she's like eight feet tall, definitely not 110 pounds, has six arms. I don't think any tattoos. Oh my, no, they've got hella tattoos, dude. In fairness, if anyone's going to ruin Brodor's life, it's Brodor. Touche. That's true. That's true. I just have to make my house handicapped accessible for when he takes out his other eye. All right. So let's get down to today's topic. Let me set up what we're going to talk about and then immediately put some parameters on the conversation because this has the potential, as is already happening all over the internet, to get way out of hand, way off topic. So what we're talking about today is the update that is supposedly coming from Wizards of the Coast to something known as the OGL or the Open Gaming License. For anyone who has no idea what I'm talking about, the Open Gaming License is something that was created back around the time of D&D 3rd Edition. And the purpose of the Open Gaming License was to invite other companies to come in and create their own products that were completely compatible with the concepts and rules of mainstream D&D and create a lower bar of entry for new players because theoretically, if you learn one game, the concepts carry over to any of these other products you play. So if you learn D&D, you're already at least in the ballpark of, say, something like D20 Modern, Pathfinder, whatever. And that was called the Open Gaming License. Now, there has been a leak, and let me stress, this is a leaked document, or at least supposedly a leaked document, that has come out of Wizards of the Coast saying that they are about to change the terms of this license in a way that is not very friendly to the people that rely on it to make their products, which reigns in size from small publishers like our good friend John Grana, who made Blood Moon Goblins, all the way up to much larger companies like Cobalt or obviously Paizo is probably the elephant in the room making Pathfinder. Now, we want to stress a few things. First of all, this is a leak, and only supposedly so at that. Secondly, the news on this is changing very rapidly. There is supposed to be an official statement coming from Wizards of the Coast on what will and won't change in the new OGL sometime within the next couple of days after us recording this. So by the time this show gets edited and dropped, everything could be completely different than what we think it is now. Third, we are not lawyers, and even if we are, I have gotten the opinions of three different attorneys, two of which specialize in business and intellectual property law, and they can't agree on what this means. And if it is anything like what the leak says, this is almost certainly headed to court anyway, which puts it all back up in the air, because who knows where this is going to go. So what we want to talk about is not the document itself, nor the contents of the document, because that is being speculated on, argued about, and discussed to death all over the internet, and we'll probably just make ourselves look like fools in an unusually big way in the process. 
I will say in comparison, the original OGL is designed to be one page. And the leaked document is 15 pages of legalese. Whoa. So there is a lot of room for things to be hidden. And it takes it takes a while to work your way through it. Because contract is not designed to protect you, the signatory whom is being handed the contract. The contract is designed to protect the person who's trying to violate you. And honestly, and I'm not saying this because I haven't been on the show in a while and I'm, you know, I'm afraid you guys forget who I am. But in all honesty, I think that was very succinctly put, but also setting the parameters that we're not going to talk about the document itself. I've not read the OGL, the original OGL, the the current OGL, so I can't comment on that. Not in any way that really matters, but if what people who are much smarter than I am, if what they're saying is true, then, you know, it just reinforces something that I have believed for 20 years and all espouse right now is that the Watsi party hates you. Well, yeah, and that's where we're going to focus, not specifically on Watsi hating you, but we want to talk around this topic in terms of how does this impact our hobby, how did we get here, and why this actually, as scary as it is, might in the long run be a good thing. So we're not going to talk about the specifics of the OGL. We are just going to talk about the situation as a whole, okay? So the context of this. Let's go ahead and start with what Brodor said. Yeah, because I want to counter him. I don't think Watsi hates you. I don't think they notice or care about you as a consumer. What this document is aimed at and what their goal is at is competitors. This is aimed at other businesses. You're just the person giving them money. They don't care enough to hate you. And I'll say that I don't think that they hate you either. But I think that they see, hey, they're making money off our product and we want more of that money than you're making. So we want to get that slice of the pie too. Yeah, you know what I think this is really a reaction to, although belated? It's a reaction to two things. The first is when Pathfinder took the market from them. When they very briefly overtook them, they realized that another company using their own product that they had released was able to take market share from them. That was something that scared them and made them want to think about how they could protect themselves against that in the future. Point, Cole. Then... They are looking for a new model of moving to subscription services and online. Point, Cole. And that immediately makes them want to do a new license because they're going to change the way they fundamentally do business with their products. Well, I also think it's somewhat telling that do they understand the market as a whole? Because I think along with something called 1D&D that they're working on, I think what they're missing out on here is that in the process of trying to consolidate and to make some money off of the product side of this. And once again, I'll agree with where it was that said, this isn't about the consumer. The consumer is getting affected, but this is probably not about us at all. This is about publisher. What I think they either don't understand or don't care about, and I don't know which, is how this will affect the consumer in the process. There's something that I was talking to my brother-in-law about where he made the point that a lot of times politicians say something like, we want to do this and we can pay for it by taxing 
consumers in a particular way, and they base their projections off of current consumer behavior. What they don't take into account is the moment that you levy the taxes or change the tax code, pretty soon the consumer will catch on and they will change their behaviors as a result. And I think that's kind of the trap that Watsi has backed themselves into, that I don't know that they fully appreciate that what they're doing based on the current state of the market may change the way that we consume or change the nature of the market in such a way that it undoes a lot of what they think they're going to get out of this. I also think you have a lot of executives in place now that weren't there when Dancy and Cook were around, and they look at this and say, why in the world did we ever let other people use our property? They're trying to pull it back because they would have never allowed it if they were there to begin with. I disagree there. I think some of the people that were there during that time with Watsi are still there with Watsi. Now, I could be wrong, but I think it's more insidious than that. I think that someone had the foresight to use the OGL to build the popularity of the brand. And then at a very crucial moment, particularly when their greatest rival had to go to Shane Hensley and beg Shane, please let us do Pathfinder Savage Worlds because nobody's buying 2.0. We're dying here. Watsy was like, ha ha, you. We can kill Pathfinder now. And anybody else who gets uppity like Cobalt, right? I think this is calculated. It's deliberate. They knew exactly what they were, knew what they were doing. They said, y'all can build the popularity of our brand and bring us back from the brink of of just oblivion and being forgotten. And now we'll now we're just going to take over. It's genius. It's evil genius, but it's genius. Dan mentioned one D&D a little bit ago, and I didn't even consider one D&D. What if they're doing this to draw everybody away from the table to bring everybody online, which is what D&D wants to accomplish with one D&D. Well, it's, it's been trying to accomplish it th- since third edition D&D. Well, I say that goes back to freaking Gleemax. How many people even remember Gleemax? I do. Um, I don't. <laughs> they were trying to build tools since 2000 for you to play on your computer at home. It's just now that technology has finally caught up with their desires. Nobody remembers when they opened their own retail stores because they wanted to circumvent three-tier distribution and shut out the hobby market. Nobody remembers when they tried to undercut the hobby market by selling books to Barnes and & Noble and, uh, and, and Borders. Who, who's out of business? Oh yeah, Borders. Undercut us by selling them books weeks earlier than we would get those books so people would buy from them so we would get hurt. Nobody remembers how they decided to take the MSRP off of Magic the Gathering cards. So it was the Wild West to figure out pack prices or how to set tournament prices for anything. Dude, I'm sorry I'm hot, but they hate you. They hate the hobby market. They've always hated the hobby market. They've always hated you Midwest corn-fed fat neckbeards. They hate you. And just a side note. Who thought that the former sailor would be the cleaner mouth of the of the podcast crew here? <laughs> Do you see these people at Gen Con? No, you don't see them at Gen Con. Are they there anymore? No, they don't want to be a part of that. They just want the revenue of the machine. 
They don't want to mingle with you plebeian, disgusting gamer people. We just want you to buy our books and make us popular enough that the mainstream will adopt us. And then we can do like Disney and rape your childhood. Uh -uh. So stressing that we are speculating here on a lot of things. Now, there are some facts that Brodor stated in there. For example, the removal of the MSRP. I mean, certainly Broder would be well positioned to know how they interacted with the hobby market, particularly in terms of the sales side, because he was managing game stores at the time. But let me stress that the facts are being wrapped in editorial. But here's the underlying question that I want to ask. And I'm going to posit, once again, stressing this is speculative, an answer, which is given this history, why did people trust Wizards of the Coast in the first place? and go along with the open gaming license. And some of my thoughts on this, or I think perhaps my central thesis on this, is, Brodor, I don't think you are wrong in terms of the fact that there were people watching this and perhaps silently building some kind of opportunism here. But I really do genuinely believe there are people that were involved in the open gaming license who really did mean it not just in the letter of how it was presented, but in the spirit of how it was presented. I really do believe there were people that meant for this to be a similar point in our hobby to what, say, open source software is to the computing market, that they really did mean this to be a way to lower the cost of entry, both for a player and for a publisher. And I think it is telling that A lot of those people, A, said as much on our show. If you want to see the episodes and timestamps, I link them or mention them over on our Facebook page. And if I I may, I believe the kids refer to that as having the receipts. Yeah, okay, fair enough. We have the receipts. Now, I don't know that they're legally binding or legally significant, or maybe they are. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But they stated that this was the intention. And I know some of the people that I was interacting with at the time well enough to say, I take them at their word. Was it somewhat in retrospect naive to think that a large corporation, or at least the biggest corporation within role-playing and tabletop game space at the time, would not eventually turn this to a pure dollars and cents, uh, much more I don't know, seems to be predatory behavior, possibly there was. I've got a handful of reasons why I think people went with it. First reason is laziness. They didn't want to have to create their own systems. They already had stuff out there. They were already publishing for it. The second is they like money. And we all know D&D is the 500-pound gorilla in the room. It's what people buy. People talk about, well, how would I run this game in D&D? How would I run that game in D&D? Even though we're not those players, those players make up about 80% of the market. So if you want to sell stuff, you make it for D&D. But I think there's a third aspect of... The one page, really simple, easy to read legalese, makes it sound like it's impossible for this to be revoked. Yes, that was one of the conversations I had with an attorney. And once again, even these attorneys can't seem to agree with each other. So I don't know how this plays out. But in the layman's terms, if I say I am granting you something in perpetuity, we understand that to mean forever. 
but that's not what it means. Once again, my understanding, that's not what it means in a contract that in perpetuity means there is simply no declared end date. That doesn't mean there won't be one. That's revocability, not perpetuity. And what the OGL doesn't state is it is irrevocable. Right. There are two very specific lines from the original. And I will quote the original OGL since it's not a leak and it's something that's actually released. So the grant consideration, in consideration for agreeing to use this license, the contributors grant you a perpetual worldwide royalty-free non-exclusive license with the exact terms of this license to use the open gaming content there's also however a section listed called updating the license wizards and its designated agents may publish updated versions of this license you may use any authorized version of this license to copy, modify, and distribute any open game content originally distributed under any version of the license. And that's the part that, with this leaked release, the very first thing it says is previous versions of this license are no longer authorized. But if you take the people that were creating it, assuming what's good, taking the corporation out of the picture, taking the individuals at their statement of goodwill, which I can't stress enough, I do believe was completely the case with at least some of them. And you take that plus a plain reading of that first part you stated. I'm not going to try and dissect what this means in contract law because I don't know. But I will say I understand how we got here. And Wayne, you were talking about the market penetration of D&D. It's an easy thing to get on the coattails of. Why didn't Pathfinder make their own system? Because they already had catalogs of content. And instead, if they made Pathfinder version one, they could keep selling their content. Sure. That's what they said when they were asked. Well, let me throw in another motivation that I think is worth underlining here. We are participating in what is a distinctly creative hobby. All of us in the hobby are creators to one degree or another. If you're a player, you create your character. If you're a GM, you create your story. If you're a writer or wannabe writer, you're creating your own products. Recently, another company, Catalyst Games Lab, which is basically controlling all the major properties of what used to be FASA, so Battletech, Shadowrun, etc., they had a Battletech Kickstarter. And I backed it at a level that allowed me to add a character into the canon of Battletech. Why did I do that? Because I love Battletech. And even though I had no delusion I was ever going to make any money off of what I was contributing. In fact, I was paying them money to do it. The possibility or the option here, the chance to put myself and my ideas into this space was worth a lot to me. And I think in the same way, if I look at someone like John, I don't think John ever had any delusion he was going to make money beyond, you know, buy a case of beer off of Blood Moon Goblins. He did it because he loved the idea he came up with and loved the idea of contributing that to the collective space of D&D. And so I think it is fair to note that there is another motivation in there that I don't think is fairly described under laziness or greed. Uh, or a path of least resistance, or however you want to iterate that. I, I think it is fair to say the vast majority of people that participate, even in the publication side of tabletop role-playing games, are there because they love the games, 
not because they think they're going to get rich off of that. No, I could not agree with you more. And then what happened is, is that Watsi said, hey, here is an opportunity for you to make some beer money or some extra income, or maybe if you're lucky on drive-through, make a, a, a meager living selling stuff. And, and now they're saying, that's fine. You can still do that. We're just changing the terms of the agreement to the point where I've never heard anyone complain about the OGL before. And now I hear people are terrified it for various reasons. So obviously there's some there there. When you go from one page to 15 pages, it is pretty clear to me that the document is no longer designed for me to easily understand it and to easily navigate it as a layman. And, uh, you know, forgive me for being heated earlier, but I'm, I really, I, I'm, I'm so mad at the Watsi party. Um, I, I just, I, I, I just think we need to do something about them they terrify me i i'm 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 just i'm 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 so scared that they're going to they're going to come and get me Robert, can I ask you a question here that i think may cut to the real heart of this issue because everybody loves to debate issues in terms of logos or logic the facts of the situation and if you look online right now at what's going on the debates that are occurring and the arguments and whatever they're always wrapped up in a logos appeal and in a logical appeal. Well, you can't do this or, or it's not fair because of this or whatever. And even the people that are on the opposite side are saying, well, it's not that big of a deal or they can do it. And they try to present it in these very logical terms, but we are not creatures of logic. No, of we are not. fundamentally creatures of an ethos or pathos. We are creatures of a social contract and we are creatures of emotion. So let me ask you a question. Put aside for a moment all the history. Put aside for a moment all the facts or speculation about facts. Why purely as an emotional human being that is passionate about this hobby, why do you care? And and I'm, I'm picking on you, but I think this is a fair point of introspection for everyone, myself included. Here's why I really care, sincerely. Because they're carrying the standard, right? They're the vanguard of the tribe. This thing is not just about making money. It's about this shared experience of this thing that we have that is uniquely ours, this art form that we live in. And I know that he is a, you know, persona non grata, but I'll still quote him because he's right. Jim McClure said that role-playing games are the greatest form of art that human beings have ever created. It is this myth building that we do and we share together this narrative, this, you know, whether whether it's comedy or horror or whatever, we are living these fictional lives together. We're taking the most precious of our free time and we're playing and make believe together because that's how much everything else in the outside world sucks. And they have a responsibility to carry that thing and they have polluted that thing and the reputation of that thing. And I know that that is not logical, but they have an obligation, in my opinion, as a fan and as a member of the tribe to not tarnish the reputation of the thing, to not dirty the banner that they're carrying. And they don't give a that's why they don't come to Gen Con, because they don't care. They don't want to be around you. They don't care about the banner. They don't care about the standard. And that hurts my feelings. 
And me not being a D&D fan, because I haven't played, I'll be honest to the audience, I haven't played a D&D game since 1990, which should give an indication of how old I am. This situation affects me also, because when I'm explaining to someone who hasn't played the hobby and I'm trying to bring them in, I don't go, you know what, I'd like to play pretend vampires with you, or I'd like to play a pretend space game with you. I'm like... I've got this game, it's about people living on a planet, and we're going to build a community. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, but it's for a a community-building space game. And they'll go, oh, well, I understand that. Whereas the other way, I'm trying to explain a generic concept to them, and they don't get it. And if the standard bearer tarnishes the image of the standard, then it's like... You know, you're using the analogy of something terrible to explain something good, and then nobody wants that. I look at it from a different perspective, from the standpoint of, sure, they're the standard bearer, but the people seeing the standard, the vast majority of them, are never going to hear about any of this, and it's not going to tarnish the reputation at all. It's going to tarnish it within our circles. Yeah. It's going to tarnish it within people that know about role-playing games. But I would guess, based on the numbers we've seen... That 80% or so of the players out there never listen to a podcast, don't watch YouTube about it. Maybe that number is skewed a little bit with Critical Role's popularity, but for the most part, they don't know about any of the licensing. They don't know that the OGL even existed to begin with. Yeah, okay. So you guys are splitting right between two points here that I think are worth discussion. So let me kind of organize this a little bit. Let me start with what Wayne said, and then I'm going to back up to what DJ said. What Wayne said is what I had titled in my notes here of why this really may not matter to the majority of players. Those of us that are deep into the nuts and bolts of the hobby, and doubly so if you have a product that's your favorite product or you create products under the OGL, you have an even bigger investment in this hobby. But the people that are talking about it We are a vocal minority. We are not the silent majority of the consumers. The vast majority of people that went and saw the Marvel movies and loved them and enjoyed them, they had no idea about the copyright struggles and the ownership struggles and the financial things that were going on between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. There have been other things like this where... I think Batman went through something similar in terms of who exactly created Batman. You know, what role did Bob Kane? Bill Finger, Bob Kane. Then there's the Superman rights. All of that as well. Shooter Siegel. Great game wizards. I mean, it's fucking, you know, Dave and Gary. Yeah. Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. Yeah. The average person that plays this hobby does not know does not care because they do it from consumer side. When I go to buy a new car, I don't have any idea about the politics on the factory and I might have an opinion, but deep down that is not going to be powerful enough to drive my decision to buy or not buy. Now, where this might make the market care anyway, despite the fact the average person doesn't know, is if this changes the products that are being made, what's out there to consume. Or what the one person in your group who does care, who is probably the GM, who is probably the big influencer of your consumption choice, if they choose to jump ship or the products shift in such a way that suddenly there is no longer a glut of D&D out there, but what people are pushing, what they're talking about, what you can buy 
isn't D&D or D&D compatible anymore, I think this will eventually have an impact. The same way that if the Stanley Jack Kirby thing blew up to the point that let's say somebody had lost the rights to Spider-Man, well, now that does affect the consumer, even if they don't care how we got there. But I think it is worth noting that as passionate and vocal as we are, it is fair. And when I say we, I don't mean the show. I mean really hardcore role players in, in general. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, you're not the average role player. Yes. You're already more invested. You are in that minority. And we care, even if you only care at 1%, that's 1% more than the average person playing D&D cares about. Uh, to my family group that's playing the West Marches game, I had to explain this topic, even like what the argument is about, last night at dinner because they didn't even, well, outside of one person, outside of uh, my brother-in-law, Doug, they didn't even know this was going on, much less what the implications of it were, much less why they as a role player should care. And then they went on to continue working on a gnomish artificer out of Tasha's without a second thought to it. And so I think it is fair to note that we shouldn't overstate just because of our emotion that's invested in this, or even our, our dignity or our legal concerns or whatever. I'm not saying these things don't matter. No, but right now there's a lot of hyperbole and clickbait and using people's emotions to generate content for themselves. That's probably one of the reasons that I'm angry is that I realize that I don't matter. And it, it's always sad to me to see the community of people that built a thing and that carried it from the dark ages of the satanic panic and into the light are now being eschewed by, you know, some greedy corporate whores. Right. I don't think it's going to be as big of a deal as people are making it out to be. However, I have read the leaked document, and I have a ton of concerns in it, and I would not release a product under it. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, we're, of course, working primarily on Skies of Glass. The second thing I was looking at doing after that was a product dedicated to playing an Olish tribe based on what I developed for Gnarl. I'm not going to do that anymore. I mean, if this goes this way, I might release a rules agnostic setting book. But I sure as hell would not put anything under the OGL. Is Dan not putting out gnarl content going to rock the waves of, of the ocean of D&D? And the answer is, of course, no. And that's really what I wanted to accomplish in this episode is not get all nuts trying to work down the details of it that we don't understand. Right. Or may not be qualified to discuss, but instead is to context this of why does this matter to the gestalt of our hobby and to give sort of a format to where this fits in and why we care, even if I can't explain to you what effect it has, or even if it turns out in the long run, that effect is minimal. I mean, I have a theory that Watsy released that leak. This is just a theory, uh, but I have a theory that Watsy released that leak to test the waters and see what they could get away with. And as a part of that theory, I think the actual OGL 1.1, it may have some issues, but I don't think it's going to be as brutal as what's been leaked. That's just a guess. But that's why I think that. The reason that it's a bad thing for me, I don't know if it's just me or if maybe this is why it's resonating with other people as well, but gaming was the place I was relevant 
And now D&D is telling me that I don't matter. And that sucks. It's like somebody disrespecting your significant other. Does it, I'm assuming it's just words. Does it really change anything? No. But does it affect how you feel? Oh, yeah. And you could continue that out to does it affecting how you feel actually change the way you interact with the world and therefore have a real impact and you get way down a rabbit hole. Right. Maybe that's the difference. I never thought I mattered to them. To smaller publishers where I have conversations with the publishers and I regularly am talking to them through different media. Yeah, I think I might have tricked myself into believing I matter there. But I never believe that for something as big as Wizards of the Coast. So where I want to close this one out on is a counterpoint to what we ourselves have been saying that also make it a bit controversial, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. On some level, I'm not convinced this isn't a good thing, even if it is as bad as it looks like it's going to be, and here's why. Now, let me preface this by saying, please do not misunderstand. I am not trying to minimize the impact this has on people that are passionate about this, nor the impact this has on the livelihood of the people that make these products. So this is meant to be a yes and, not an either or, okay? So I am not dismissing the problems this could create for a lot of people in saying there might be a bright side to this in a weird sort of way. And here's my sort of, I don't know, off-kilter bright side to this. What I already see happening is two things, both of which I think are good. The first one goes back to a point that DJ made, and there was an episode that we dedicated to discussing this, and I'll also link that one in the show notes. I like D&D, but I resent what it has come to represent. That our hobby is D&D, and D&D is our hobby. If I say I read books, people say, oh, what books? If I say I watch movies, people say, oh, what genres? If I say I play role-playing games, they say, what's that? I then explain it and they say, oh, you mean D&D. And I do not like the fact that D&D has become the placeholder for a large, diverse, multifaceted hobby with so many ideas and opportunities and approaches to rules and approaches to storytelling and, and all this stuff, and it has been reduced to one thing, that it is D&D 5e. If you've seen Critical Role for two episodes, you now understand the entire hobby top to bottom. And that really irritates me. And seeing the number of people that are now rebelling against D&D and saying, look, I'm moving my group to a new product, or I'm going to stop writing for D&D and start writing a new product, that alone, simply knocking D&D down a peg or two, or making people more hesitant to hitch their wagon to it, that has value to me. And I realize it's going to be a controversial statement. I can't stress enough. This doesn't mean I don't feel your pain. But I'm just saying that there might be a long-term bright side to breaking the addiction of D&D. And so... For me, because I haven't played D&D a lot, the circles that I have run into or run with, we played in the storyteller system a lot. So I play a lot of Vampire or had played a lot of Vampire from when I was in the Navy all the way through about five years ago. So I was stuck in that system. I couldn't find anyone that wanted to branch me out from that system. So the group that I'm playing with right now has been open to me trying new things. So this is where I've gotten to try brand new systems, systems that I love. So 
Green Ronin's age. I've tried Fate for the first time. I've been looking into the Doctor Who role-playing game. That system looks great. I was looking into Pathfinder and Starfinder because they looked, that looked like an interesting setting, something interesting. There's several Eastern fantasy uh, RPGs that I was looking into because I'm more into the Eastern fantasy. But this is a chance for everybody that's offended by what's going on to, if you're just a player or a GM looking to shift, maybe you want to look at a different system, not for a hate reason, but to you know branch out to see what else is out there and check things out, because this is an opportunity now to give something else a chance that isn't connected to D&D. I'm not even saying avoid OGL products. I'm just saying, you know, something that doesn't have the Dungeons and Dragons name properly attached to it. So, yeah. And I think that's what I'm getting at is I don't have a call to action here. No, you know, no. some people are out there saying, well, we need to start boycotting Watsy products or we need to stop playing d and I'm not saying that's where I'm at. I've even seen the extremism of let's boycott Kickstarter because they made a deal with Kickstarter. Yeah. And I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is that I think there is a bright side to people breaking this addiction to one title, which leads me to my next point is because this has startled and frightened a lot of creators with very good reason. I understand why. And once again, I am not insensitive to the fact that they may be putting food on their table and clothes on their kids with what they're making off of the OGL. I'm not insensitive to that. But what I see from a lot of these small creators that I love, I'm happy it's happening, is they're saying, you know what, even if this works out for the better, even if the OGL 1.1 isn't that bad, or they lose in court and the OGL 1.0A stands, they're saying, you know what, I think this has stared me enough that I'm going to start making new products, new games, new rules models, or even saying I'm going to invest in different but safer ones, that I'm going to start doing fate slash fudge products or doing savage products or something else. But the amount of innovation and diversity this is going to bring, not just from a consumptive standpoint, but from a creative standpoint, I think this could be a wonderful renaissance within our hobby. You know, if you guys think back to when there was that big burst of indie games, that gave rise to some of the things like Fate and Fudge that we now, with at least within heavy consumers, these are household names. Oh, yeah. I would love to think we are on the brink of the next great opportunity for people to stop being comfortable and to start coming up with new ideas and new rules models and new settings and unhitching their wagons and creating a great big long buffet as opposed to a menu with three options. Who wants a menu with only three options? Unless those options are vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of people out there do want that. Yeah, They don't want the variety. There are quite a few people that will be happy to just play the same D&D game for 40 years. That's not me. Well, and for those people, you know what? Nobody's going to come to your house and take your D&D books away. I will. Well, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> save the threats of violence for being off air. But, sorry, sorry. I mean, for the people that are still playing their second edition campaign that they've been playing for decades, keep on playing. Same thing's true of fifth edition. If you like fifth edition or whatever it is, nobody's going to come take your books away. I mean, this whole discussion 
is only relevant if you play multiple things or create new things or, or pick up new product. You know, if you've got your wagon hitched to whatever it is you're playing and you're satisfied with maybe it's not even D&D, maybe you're over here with GURPS or Shadowrun or I don't know what it is and you're happy with that, right? This really doesn't even apply to you. But for the rest of the hobby, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to get created. For those that might uh, be, I don't know, still interested in Bujo RPG, I am iterating. And uh, it was always designed eventually to be a role-playing game down the, down the line. So, I mean, you know, it'll exist at some point as its own property. And then at some point we'll have you back on here to defend the very strict terms of Bujo 2.0. <laughs> Dan, I, I appreciate your optimism. I really do. And I hope you're right. I mean, I, I love this hobby. I guess I just, I don't know. I guess I, I'm just butthurt. It tastes bad. Oh, it should. It should. Let me give you a little historical anecdote, and then we're going to shut this down, which is, I don't know if any of you here have ever been on a large passenger liner, something like a cruise ship. There is so much about the safety measures, the innovation, the presentation, the experience that you have on those that all tie back to one single point in history, which is the sinking of the Titanic. You would not believe how much of maritime law and maritime luxury and maritime experience and all this stuff goes back to what the Titanic represented and what was done to change the experience of being on a passenger liner after the Titanic sank. Was it good that, what was it, 1,500 people or however many lost their lives drowning in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic? No, it was terrible. But did it bring about some good things? Yeah, in a messed up sort of way, it did. Life's complicated like that. If we want to keep the OGL the way it is or a better OGL, we have to kill 1,500 people? Yes, that is exactly what I am suggesting. <laughs> as long as they're from steerage, no <laughs> one will miss them anyway. Right. Oh, steerage. Yeah. And this is me saying it. We're obviously not advocating, condoning, suggesting, etc. that you should hurt anybody for any reason, right? Right. And historically speaking, just keep in mind that one lady survived the sinking of the Titanic and the Britannic, and the Lusitanic. So don't sail with her. Yeah, exactly. Just like there was one man who survived the atomic bombing of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh. After Hiroshima got nuked and he survived, he fled back to his home in Nagasaki and was there to get nuked a second time and lived. So anyway, I think that's where we're going to kill this one off. So because Wayne's agreed to edit the remote shows while I continue editing the local shows. So I don't want to give him too much work. So we're going to shoot this one in the head here. But anyway, keep your eye on gaming news if this is something you're interested in or invested in or you are an RPG creator. But I hope what we could do here was just add a little context to the conversation that doesn't deal with the text of the OGL itself, but only deals with what it has represented to our hobby, what it will represent to our hobby, and maybe the opportunities it presents right now. So as always... Thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2023. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. 
You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.